Hello and welcome back to the Product Experience Podcast. This is our first episode of 2023. I hope you all had an amazing holidays and you're ready to start the new year. Um, We're going to kick off with an episode all about the language of product. And we're talking today to Andy Pallane, who's a design leadership coach. He's a service design and innovation consultant, an educator, a writer, a keynote speaker, and a fellow podcaster. Sadly, Randy couldn't be with me today to do this introduction because he's off in New York doing what New Yorkers do, um, which I guess is like eating donuts and stuff like that. Maybe drinking some fancy cocktails. Um, But... I'm terrible at doing these intros on my own, so I'm not going to chat anymore and let's get started with our chat with Andy. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover more. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium content discounts to our conferences around the world, and training opportunities. Mind the Product also offers free Product Tank meetups in more than 200 cities. There's probably one near you. Andy, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And before we get stuck into our topic for today, would you give us a real quick intro into your background in product or not in product? (laughs) So, um... It depends how far back you want to go. I originally studied film. Right? I wanted to be a film director. That's, that's that was my thing. And then I, I you know, computers happen, right? So, um, and back then, at very early nineties. So I'm talking about nineteen ninety one, two, three. Multimedia happened. So this interactive thing, and it, it allowed us to a bunch of us who didn't really know about coding or anything to start making interactive stuff. And you know, the fact that we didn't really know what we were doing was quite important because we were exploring this medium and trying to understand it. So that's how that started. And um, so it developed into what is now, or what was, you know, interaction design, eventually UX, IA was in there too. You know, all of those things before that was, any of those things were a thing. So we were exploring what does it mean to make interactive stuff? And then, you know, I I worked as a sort of digital interactive guy um, in various forms for some time, um, both teaching it as well as doing it commercially and then I was heading School of Media Arts, actually, in Australia, uh, uh, what was then the College of Fine Arts at UNSW there. And we were having a – I sort of got interested in designing organizations, and we were having a faculty meeting around, you know, reorganizing the faculty. And I realized we were sort of having conversations in a meeting rooms, reading out sheets of A4 at each other. And I thought, this is weird. You know, most of us are designers here or artists. Why are we not at the whiteboard kind of sketching this stuff out? This is a design process, surely. So I got really interested in designing of uh, organizations. And then in around 2001, I think, I went to visit Ben Reason, where I met then um, Laverne's Lovely and Chris Downs, who started Live Work. And Ben, who I'd known from, from earlier days, said, um, well, we do this thing called service design, and we've just started this, uh, this studio. And as he was talking about it, it was like, oh, my God, there's a whole name for the way I think and, and you know, uh, ways and methods and all those kinds of things. So over the subsequent years, I sort of shifted in that direction and got into service design. And I was teaching it, and it's, it's kind of a difficult thing to teach, actually, which for that kind of Zoom level thing we might talk about in a minute. And I 
said to Ben and Leverins and Chris, hey, when are you guys going to write the book on service design? Because, you know, you guys wrote the book on service design, um, except you haven't written it yet. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And eventually I said, listen, I, I spoke to Lou Rosenfeld at Rosenfeld Media and I said, Look, I'm, I, and I pitched him the thing. And I was originally going to do it as a kind of journalistic way and speak to lots of service designers and kind of put it together. And then Ben and Laverin said, now come on, we'll write it with you. So that was sort of the official switch, I suppose, into that. And now what I mostly do, having spent a lot of time doing that stuff and being a design director and design leadership positions and training people and teaching, um, is I spend my time, most of my time, as a design leadership coach. So I coach people from about kind of senior upwards, anyone who's kind of leading a project or people and, and departments and heading stuff, um, I coach them uh, through their existential crises that t- tends to kind of get triggered as they move <laughs> into leadership. Um, so I think you have a background in semantics or um, or something like that. But um, tell us about uh, like what inspired the talk that you did, because you talk about the importance of language in when we're, we're kind of working together and making sure that we're on the same page in terms of like the different language that we're using and the meaning behind it. So I'm not really from a semantics background i'm i've you know i did a phd i wrote it about interactivity and trying to understand that and playfulness um you know it come, came up quite i talked about language quite a lot in the talk that you saw and one of these things was this idea that um you know world words create worlds which is the um herschel quote and i talked about the semantics thing because that's right because just james garrett um, in a conference uh, a while back one of the adaptive path ones said, you know, there's a lot of product designers here. What can they take away from service design? And I said, my brother's an industrial designer, right, by trade. And I said, by product designer, you mean people who make digital touch points for services, not, you know, products. And he went, well, if you want to talk semantics. And I thought about it quite a bit afterwards because I didn't, I just didn't want to be a, a dick at the conference and go, well, actually, yes, I do want to talk semantics. But the the, the kind of point about it is it, it really makes a difference, right? If you... If you're an asylum seeker, you know, or an illegal immigrant, or you're an activist, or are you a terrorist? You know, these are all ways that we use to kind of divide up and exclude and include people, and it, it really does make a difference. And so that's kind of what I was talking about in in the talk that actually the words you use set up a mental model of how you think about things, right? If you dis, if you think of someone as a as an activist, you think of them in a certain way. If you think of them as a terrorist, you think of them in another way. And not only that, you know, different laws apply and rules apply to those people. And so my point about the kind of product versus services thing is a lot of the stuff that gets talked about as products are really services, right? And so if you look at Oh, Slack, Twitter. I mean, you know, the Twitter meltdown going on at the moment is a really good example that it's not a product, right? A Twitter is a space that people inhabit as one thing. There's also a bunch of services. You know, any of those things, like if you fire up Slack and its servers are down, you just get that, that kind of placeholder shape thing. And it it's not a thing, right? You it, It's got a whole bunch of services that sit behind it. And that's what it is. Slack is a communication service, right? And the reason why that matters is because, you know, service design tends to take a kind of ecosystem view. And I'm not saying it's better or not, but it's a, a kind of higher level zoom. I have this diagram of these kind of stacked diamonds they are, but they're kind of like layers. And, you know, at the top, you've got 
these kind of pestle layers, right, of like political, economic, social, technological, um, or what are the other two, environmental and legal, I think, are they? Where these are kind of where all the wicked problems in the world are. You know, we've just had this um, environmental summit where, you know, they're desperately kind of working with this. And then right down, you've got kind of, you know, market level, you've got business levels, organisation level, and right down to you've got single touch points. And by which I mean in, in service design parlance, a touch point is the moment of interaction between you and a service or an organisation, right? So it could be a form, it could be an app, it could be a website, it could be a person, it could be a physical thing and so on, right? And, you know, when you say when you go through an airport, you have interactions with multiple touch points and actually multiple service providers to, just to get on the plane. Whereas the kind of product, and so the thinking about this is that, that those systems, those are complex systems, right? And in complex systems, you cannot take one piece out of it or pull it apart and put it back together again because all the parts are dependent on each other. Um, in the kind of product mindset, in the industrial mindset of it, you've got a complicated thing like a car. You can take a car apart and you can put it back together again. Right? It doesn't. The act of taking it apart doesn't stop it being a car. And what you see in product, and I'm, I'm this is a bit straw man in the sense that what I'm talking about is probably product done badly because you know, but I see a lot of that. Um, is that it, a a service gets broken down into what well, gets talked about as product, and those products get broken down into features, and then you basically get the assembly line kind of mentality again. And it's why you get the neat slippage of, you know, project managers becoming product managers. And then what they see themselves as there for is just to kind of drive features and um, stuff from the backlog out into delivery. And, and that's a problem, I would argue. Um, now, I'm not saying that services are better than products. What I'm saying is it's really important to remember that what you might use as shorthand to talk about a product is actually part of a larger ecosystem and it's a service. And that's important because of the way you then think about how everything else connects. I think it's a really, really interesting um, point and it kind of, it resonates with me. And I I think there's a lot of the times, you know, we forget, like we're, we're concentrated on our own little world of our products that we're working on. And whilst we do, you know, we might do user research to kind of try and understand like, where this product fits in our customers' lives or our users' lives or whatever. You know, a lot of product managers aren't trained designers. So we might not have that kind of background in in how to sort of map out the product as part of a bigger service. So you kind of said like it's more sort of bad product management. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> might be thinking in this way of which I'm sure I have been guilty of in the past because you know we don't get caught, taught this stuff so we're all sort of fumbling our way through mm. um do you think that like in in the world of service design like I don't know many service designers I'm not particularly familiar with the practice in the world of service design is it um how do people then structure or or kind of think about design so that that entire experience is more considered like how is it broken down yeah so you know when i say bad product design, product management <laughs> i'd say i mean i guess you know what i what i mean by this is a sort of obsessive focus on subdividing into kind of features and feature teams and you know literally down to um there's a team who's 
job it is is to focus on notifications, right? Or you know, some really kind of small um, a submit button. I have heard of a, you know a feature team <laughs> of a submit button, right? And and that of course is so. And each one of those gets kind of a certain if they're lucky OKR or it's a KPI that is um, focused around say you know we want to get people more people engaging with this. And of course, it completely ignores the the idea of well maybe your your product or your service isn't that interesting and maybe people just don't want notifications and all that kind of stuff right uh, maybe they're just not that into you as as the book goes and the longer kind of context of that means that you get a team who are obsessively focused about actually you know notifications are kind of like digital junk mail right and it, it's it's like then just a team is completely focused on how can we how can we make our junk mail more engaging? How can we do more of it? And it's like, well, maybe that's the problem, right? Maybe there's the problem is further upstream. And that's the kind of thing I mean. You know, when I read, say, Teresa Torres' book or Melissa Perry's book or people like that, you know, I read it and I go, yeah, this all, this all makes sense. And, and for me, actually, I feel like I'm reading someone talking about product service ecosystems, right? But in my coaching, I hear a lot of the sort of opposite thing of designers getting kind of pushed down into the assembly line, especially when things are kind of money is tight or, or kind of things are stressful and they don't really get to exercise. One of the really good things that the designers have, which is why are we making this thing? How could it be different? And why could it be different? And what assumptions do we have about that? And all of that kind of stuff, which should be in there. So one of the things that service design does is try and map out those ecosystems, right? So there's a thing called a service blueprint, which you know, as an artifact, it's like a kind of higher level customer journey, but it also has all the backstage stuff. So the stuff that the organization has, the swim lanes like a kind of customer journey might have, but it looks at kind of what needs to happen backstage for that to happen. And one of the sort of fundamental things about that is, well, there's two things. One is to understand that services unfold over time and across channels, right? So someone's journey, uh, you know, I mentioned the airport thing, there's a whole load of kind of steps that you go through, often dislocated steps over time, and you use multiple channels at the same time. You know, if you ask people even how they they go to a foreign city, how they decide to kind of travel from one side of the city to another, they'll triangulate a whole bunch of stuff, like I'll Google it, and then I look up the kind of metro app, and then I've got a ticket thing. There's a whole load of stuff that people are doing all the time. They're crossing multiple services. And you only need one or two of those to break, and the whole thing starts to fall apart. So that's kind of one thing is looking at that. How does that work and mapping that out? The other thing is that it's it's less the artifact itself, which kind of degrades immediately. As soon as you make a kind of version of this, it degrades. It's actually the conversations in front of them. And, you know, whether that's in front of a digital version or kind of masses of post-it notes, as the cliche is, on the wall, uh, that's really important because it's often the first time that an organisation has seen all the bits of their service put together visually in one place so you can have a conversation about them. And that conversation is a multidisciplinary one, right? So there are people who call themselves service designers, and I don't want to kind of dismiss their their craft and their discipline, but I've come to kind of feel that service design is a an activity that a multidisciplinary team do rather than a, you know, a particular craft as such or a, prof- a, you know, or a role. Um, because if it's done right, it kind of disappears, right? The, the whole organization is, is oriented themselves to thinking in that way rather than seeing themselves in little silos. And, and that's the kind of sort of fundamental thing about service design. And ultimately, stuff has to get made and delivered, right? So that's physically, you know, that's, there's always, most services have a kind of man in a van. There's, there's always a man in a van part of a service. <laughs> 
Um, you also have what's the, what's the, the, the digital touch points and they're, you know, very, very core part of, of services. But you have a whole bunch of other stuff too, like so back, backstage infrastructure and all sorts of, and people are really important. So all of that stuff needs to get done. And, in, and when it does, it goes back into those other disciplines who are, you know, and they work that way. The key is to not lose the sort of connective tissue between them as it does go into those different bits. And so there's this kind of, you know, come together, go away and do some stuff, come together, go away and do some stuff. And this orchestration that happens um, that is really, really important to have a coherent service experience. I've had the opportunity to work with a really good service designer in the past, a couple of them actually. And at times it felt like, you know, me playing the product manager role on the team and then playing the service designer role. There was a huge overlap between what we did because they were helping us map things out and get a greater understanding and how everything fit together. And it was really all about creating an understanding for the whole team more than anything else that they went on and did other things. But you touched on something uh, uh, earlier in that answer, which was um, you get to or earlier in the conversation where you get designers that you talk to who feel left out and squeezed into just doing the thing rather mm. than exploring. So let's let's abstract this out a tiny bit. So one of the metaphors you use for all this is uh, that you're creating a garden. Mm. Um, and if you're creating a garden, you know, you can design it all, you can do all the other things, but if you've got a whole bunch of tree surgeons, but what you really need is a bridge over the lake, you know – you end up having teams that just need to build certain elements so that the service holds together and you get that cohesive experience. Yeah. How do we, how do we handle that? Because I, I coach people as well. And I've talked to so many people who just say, I'm stuck in a feature factory. I just have to deliver this thing. I can't do the exploration bit. So how do you handle the difference between it's time for exploring or time to just make sure that something is done? I mean, so that example you just gave is exactly what I'm, I guess I'm kind of complaining about. And that's just to sort of loop back to the beginning. That's where I think the, the, the linguistic mental model of product, which is, you know, a thing we build and it goes on the assembly line uh, and it then gets built by people who don't really have to kind of have any interaction with each other. You know, the, the person putting on the wheels doesn't have to care about the person putting on the headlights. And then it gets off the, and it gets sold, and and that's it, right? Then we've we've shipped it, and then we don't care about it anymore. And services aren't like that. And and the reason why I like gardens is nobody says we shipped the garden, right? It's it's never finished, Uh, and there's this kind of understanding gardens are never finished, and they don't always go how you think they're going to go. So some stuff flourishes much more than you thought. In my garden, our neighbor's tree actually. Is is because we cut our tree down because it was it was sick, and our neighbor's tree flourished so much that uh, it's actually a bit of a problem right, uh, as a result. And so you get things that steal the light and you know cast shade on something else, and and then something that really struggles because it's in the wrong location or the wrong soil and all that stuff. So it's a constant kind of monitoring. It's it's a constant sense and respond right of you know what's going on, how are things doing, what do we need to kind of boost and what do we need to trim back. I used. Um, Landscape gardens, you know, uh, I'm English, as you can hear, and, and the, the whole country homes of the UK, of Britain, of these landscape gardens that were sort of done in the um, 19th century, I think. You know, there's a certain sort of ego and humility in there that you have to have this idea of, like, I'm going to shape kind of nature to make it look like it's natural. Um, and yet there's a humility in the sense, I'm going to design something I'll never see in its maturity, 
right? It's going to last beyond my lifetime. And so there's, in that, there's a sense of being a good, a good ancestor and there's a sense of, you know, understanding that what you do now really makes a difference to kind of the, the people later. It's the same thing. Um, in that model, though, you still need people that can build a bridge over the lake. You can still need people who know how to look after trees. You still need different types of gardeners, got different kind of abilities um, to do those things. And I think that, um, you know, the, way, the feature factory example you just gave, it really does rely on product managers to really understand that you, you kind of have to think about everything in context. And so I know a few product teams who have a service designer on them, and that person's job is really to go across the, the product teams or feature teams, however it's divided up, and look at what they're doing and kind of make a map of the whole thing and then show, look, there's some stuff here that is, is not matching up. You know, when you're thinking of it in features, it kind of doesn't matter. But actually, as a, when a customer goes through this over time, they're going to have a moment where they switch from one thing to another. And sometimes it's, it's basic stuff like, like the design of buttons and things like that, because there's not a co- cohesive design system. It switches from one thing to another. And, and that's just this one of these little kind of bumps in, or question marks above the head, as Steve Crook talks about, right? Kind of little sort of bumps in the, in the road. And you don't need many of those for, the, for it to start to feel really clunky for users. And so, you know, doing that mapping out, taking everyone through it, I think is is a time when you come together, and then you you have to go. You, people go off and make the stuff, but you have to have moments of time when you come back again and review all of that stuff and look at it and see how it all fits together, and see you know where are the mismatches, and where are things not connecting up, um, and you can either look along one channel and look you know over steps in time. Are there cracks in this, or you know if we look at one moment in time when we look across the different channels, do we talk about stuff differently? Do we use different content? And it's a real content design thing. Do we use different language? Um, do we, you know, have different processes? Because you can't predict which pathways people are going to have through all those different touch points. And so your job is to try and keep it as cohesive as possible as an ecosystem. And is there any particular way that you recommend people approach the mapping, particularly in this hybrid world in which we're living in? You know, is it like a, you know, you've talked about people kind of coming together Mm-hmm. looking at things in its entirety, going off to do some work, coming back together again. Is the mapping and the, the kind of the planning out that you're doing or the or the kind of the mapping that you're mm-hmm. doing, is that something which is like revisited or do you just restart the, the process again each time that you come back together? Yeah, so there's there are kind of three forms that I think blueprinting often takes you know, which is, I'm not just talking about blueprinting, but the kind of the activity of kind of everything that goes into that. I'm not just talking about the artifact, but there is a kind of as is state, which is the first thing is to actually just is part of the discovery is to collect all of that stuff together and understand how the thing actually works rather than how everyone thinks it does. Now, there's obviously a, you know, for so if we're talking about a kind of startup here and we're talking about a digital startup, you know, digital product, and it's just a kind of focused on doing one thing, it kind of, it's going to seem irrelevant doing this because it's the, but if you're talking about anything that's like a legacy or enterprise things so or anything in public services, anything in kind of large existing services, which is a lot of them, then you have to kind of capture that as is state. And, you know, part of what you can do, part of an opportunity for innovation is, is, you know, nothing exists in a vacuum. So, you know, Uber taxis existed before Uber did, right? Obviously. And people, people got, to, you know, did ride sharing and stuff. So you can you can map out the existing way people go about doing stuff. 
um, which can often uh, you know show these opportunities for people are doing this kind of hack together and um there's there's a need there that not, is not being met right? all the kind of obvious stuff um so that's one thing i think the and and one of the things that often turns up there is there is a thing that's surfacing later on in the customer experience or customer journey as a pain point but its source is something backstage you know earlier on and it's often you know uh a data problem in a database, you know, there's often a, a kind of error that happens. There's often a delay and something like that, that kind of surfaces later on. Then there is the sort of other end of it, which is uh, we've, we've ideated and worked out what we want this idealized service to be. And, and people often will make a kind of blueprint and I'm, I've got my hands like a kind of fisherman here with kind of, they're often these huge, there used to be these huge posters on the wall. And I think most of these have gone digital now as this is how it all fits together. And, you know, it's a great deliverable for clients because they love a big poster and it's quite useful to remind everyone and to have everyone talking about it. It also kind of goes out of date immediately because, you know, I guess the digital one can be updated, but, you know, it's a slice in time. But there is a, a middle ground which is about sort of ideating. I call it like sketching services. If you're a, a physical product designer and I'm designing a lamp, you're going to do that thing where you sketch lots and lots of different versions and shapes of the lamp and then gradually sort of hone in on one shape and start to kind of adjust it and stuff. And this is a thing you can do. Um, it's quite hard to do this in that sort of ecosystem thing, um, but I find Blueprint's a useful way of doing it where you start with the touch point in use, which is what everyone can easily imagine, and then you go, okay, how do people find out about this? How do they sign up for this thing? Um, what happens when they expand these? How do they leave this service? As lots of people are finding with Twitter right now, you know, it's, it's not offboarding is a very not thought through thing for all sorts of things, also for physical products, right? It's a massive problem. And so that affords you, gives you the chance to actually think this stuff through in a kind of ecosystem level before you then go off and go, okay, well, we need a website as a touch point and we need an app as a touch point. What would be the hero journeys through it and stuff? And I think, you know, some of it is literally conversations of coming back to that stuff. Some of it is then using that helicopter view as the way to kind of spec out other parts of the you know, different touch points. And you can also use it as a way to interrogate those afterwards. As I said, you, know, you can look across and go. So I give you an example. I, I Telstra, they're a telco in, in Australia. They're the sort of big, they're like British Telecom of Australia. I, I had a uh, you know, cable modem from them and... With it, I got an email with my login details for this thing of how to admin it. Right? And then I also got in the box was a leaflet with a kind of credit card thing on it with my login details. Because someone thought, you know, what everyone's going to want to do is carry around their cable box login credentials in their wallet. Right? And now on the printed leaflet that this credit card thing was glued to was a set of login details and on the card were the login details. So between the card, the leaflet, and the email, all three of them are wrong, and they were all different. <laughs> so now here's the thing where, you know, there's one touch point glued to another touch point, and they haven't managed to kind of coordinate that to keep that together. Now I had to kind of go, well, I think it's probably, you know, 192.0.0, whatever it is, uh, the, the classic kind of login thing, or I Googled it, I think, um, to get in. That's a kind of complete failure of coordination, and stuff like that shouldn't happen. And services are quite abstract right you can't often tell the quality of things like insurance is the classic of this until well insurance is until the very worst time right it's not like a physical thing so i'm not like picking up an iphone or a nice suit and i can tell whether the threads are kind of falling off of it or you know i, I put it on and the seams are all wonky and the buttons are hanging off 
Uh, you just can't tell until you start using it. And all those different, all those little m tiny moments, those micro interactions are evidence in quality of a service. And that's why getting them coordinated is, is really, really important. If you're part of a team, which, and you feel like you're not being coordinated. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like what, what's your advice in that sort of situation? So I, I, you know, I have coaches who are service designers in, in this. And one of the things they, they will get all of the different stages, you know, they'll do the exploded view of the kind of hero journeys or whatever it is of, of all the, of all the product stuff. And they'll put them next to each other. I mean, literally it's a kind of show don't tell thing and say, look how this changes over time and look, you know, and, and to, to do that, that mapping visually with the assets they have. So that's kind of one thing, right? And, and show don't tell is always, you know, the most powerful thing. Uh, you know, if you're part of a team, you, um, I would argue this is one of the things that a, a good product manager should be doing, right? Is actually keeping track of all of this and working with other, other product managers or whoever's kind of running those teams to make sure that these are connected um, if you're not getting that, I think as, as, as a team, the first thing I try and do is, is work with the other people or speak to the other people in the other teams just to try and coordinate it. So you may be completely limited to the design part of this, to the kind of UI um, part of this. Hopefully there's nothing to stop you speaking, thinking. So I think Ben talked about this, Ben Reason, uh, Live Work talked about this idea of on and off ramps. Uh, you are responsible for your bit, but you can think about how does where do people go from the bit I'm working on and where are people coming from to the bit I'm working on and are there some decent on and off ramps here? Do these match up? And so at the very least, you can kind of think about that and you can go and speak to those people who are designing those other parts and check that at least your bits line up. And then if everyone does it, hopefully that, the whole thing lines up. I think what you're saying is uh, something you quote. I'm going to get his the pronunciation of his name wrong. Is it Jorge Arango? Arango? It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, fantastic. Uh, you quote him saying, uh, my sense is that Slack's teams think of themselves as adding features to a product instead of as stewards of a place where people work. Is that yeah. the shift you're trying to to get people to make? It is, yeah. And, um, you know, that, that was in response to Slack's, um, you know, connect thing where you, they were going to make it a bit like Discord actually is, which is you, anyone on Slack, one Slack instance can kind of, or team, uh, I've got all Mastodon in my head, uh, or anyone on one Slack team can um, connect to anyone else on another Slack team and people were kind of horrified by the idea and, and they got a lot of pushback. Um, and again, that was that idea that, well, we can add this feature and we can add this feature and in, out of, you know, without thinking about the context in which that is happening and the effects of what that's going to have. Um, and I think, yes, that's, that's what he was talking about with that. Um, we, you know, we said this thing in, in, um, in the book um, called Services Created in Silos or Experienced in Bits. And I used to be a real kind of like break down the silos and stuff. And I actually think silos are quite useful because that's where sort of communities of practice live and so forth. They, but they need to be porous, right? You need to be um, uh, able to uh, connect with other people and talk to them. For, and, and anything that's kind of pushing against that and anything that's kind of pushing against people communicating well, you know, are the right people able to have the right conversations in the right way at the right time? Uh, anything that kind of gets in the way of that is a, is a good indicator you need to address it. I can't think of a better way to wrap this up than on that quote. Andy, this has been fantastic. I think we have run out of time. I would love to keep talking about this for hours, but I think the right venue for that is probably the pub. 
So <laughs> okay, we'll do that. We'll do that some other time. <laughs> Thank you again. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Andy. The product experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith. And me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW. That's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs>